Second John. Um, I'm not going to read the whole book, but I'm going to just read actually verse 4 uh, through 11. It's the last half of those verses we'll look at this morning. Verse 4 says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Lord, as we look into this text, uh, it, it is like a postcard of sorts that was sent to a congregation that your apostle John loved, and he had concerns for them, desires for them, and Lord, uh, may I also reflect those same desires for our congregation here today. Uh, may truth speak through uh, the presentation of your word this morning. And uh, be with us as we consider this text. Glorify yourself, Lord, and make, make yourself known to us in our own hearts this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the ancient church calendar has lots of specific holy days, uh, feasts in honor of pastors and, and uh, people who had exhibited a high degree of piety or holiness. And uh, as Protestants, we really don't observe those days. We, we really only other than Sunday, and uh, we do um, obviously Easter Sunday as well. And Christmas, we focus on some of those things. But this week, a day caught my attention that I don't typically consider from year to year is uh, on December 6th, the uh, Catholic and uh, Orthodox churches observed what's called the Feast of St. Nicholas on December 6th. And uh, you might ask, well, who is jolly old St. Nick? Uh, the short answer, though, might be a little bit unsatisfying is we really don't know really for sure who he actually was. So there goes some sorts of conspiracies towards the 25th, I'm sure. But we do know that uh, St. Nicholas uh, was born in what's now known as modern-day Turkey, uh, close to 200 A.D., and uh, he was a bishop within the church. A bishop would have territory of churches that he would have to oversee and supervise. And during a Roman imprisonment, uh, he was taken in a, a persecution. He was imprisoned. And uh, after his release, people looked at him as a faithful hero 
And so people began to uh, honor him. There's lots of stories about him uh, that have cropped up through the, the years, and uh, you can Google them. There's, some of them are pretty outrageous stories. Um, but there's one such story that, ref- that actually has some bearing <laughs> on this text here this morning. Um, it was a time when he traveled to the city of Nicaea to participate in a church council in which there was debate and question over the composition of the Godhead. And at that church, at that council, there would be a a confirmation of what we now know as the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, that council, uh, at that council, uh, they were dealing with false teaching about the Son of God. Now, the teaching that they were concerned about was that there were some people saying that there was a time when the Son of God was not. In other words, he was not an eternal being co-equal with the Father. He was a created being. And Nicholas, as well as others who were there, were concerned about that false teaching. And that would mean that Jesus' blood does not have inherently in it an atoning value that would cover over all of our sins. And that's significant. And Nicholas thought that was a problem. So when Nicholas arrived in Nicaea, Uh, He spotted the root of that teaching. His name was Arius. And as the stories go, I I don't know 100% if these are actual stories or not. But as the story goes, Nicholas saw Arius at a distance. He came up to him and slapped him right across the face. And what this signifies to us here today is that you better watch out. You better not pout, for I'm telling you why. (laughs) St. Nicholas is coming to town. Well, anyway, St. Nicholas uh, took, I believe, John's instruction in this this little postcard epistle very seriously to watch out uh, for false teachers and false teaching. And really, that's what pastors are called to do. They're called to, to watch out for the flock as the flock also is to watch out for one another to make sure that we are not being deceived. And John tells his writers that the way to overcome the deceptions is to keep oneself in the love of God, and that requires us to watch over ourselves with the love of God. And to avoid deceit or to avoid deception, we have to watch ourselves, watch ourselves with the love of God. And that's what I want to develop in this text this morning with you. And I want us to see that there is a practical application that comes from understanding even doctrine about the Trinity. And to confess the Trinity can practically protect us from deceit. Verses 7 through 9 Uh, Let's just read those again. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that we may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Media 
is very deceitful. Again, maybe not something that I have to pound into our heads, but maybe really we do need to have it pounded into our heads because media is something that's in between people. And it's a way of communication that from one person to another can create all kinds of miscommunications. Subject to interpretation as we observe or read something, we don't have the full context often. And one of the reasons that I personally dispensed with Facebook is that it's filled with people that I know and love, but I'm not seeing what they say in context. And I'm missing. And if I'm not careful, I will start to fill in the gaps and construe a story about what I'm reading that could be far from the truth. And filling in with assumptions comes out of my own heart. And there can be fears that are read into things that I see that people post. And there's a danger by which a false narrative can come into one's mind and heart. Uh, you may inadvertently begin to retreat from relationships because you're misreading what you're seeing. And seeing is not really believing. You, you can see things, and it may be far from what actually is the fact. And, and I ought to just remind us all that we, we ought to be very careful that we do not trust ourselves with media or even social uh, media because the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And we can misread everything around us. Belief about what we see or what we experience comes from our heart. People, as I just mentioned, will say that seeing is believing. But that's not actually the truth. The Bible actually teaches us that what we believe is what we will see. And if we have a bad heart or if we see things around us, it may be that that's the cause, that we have a belief that is problematic. And Jesus taught that if the heart is not well, that our eye will not be well. We will not see. Belief is the motion of the heart. And if our hearts are not well, then our footing in the world will be off. We will be deceived. Now, I, I, I titled this heading of this point about, you know, there's a practical application of, of holding on to something like the Trinity that could help us with, with assessing things properly and protect us from deceit. That might surprise you. But in terms of relationship with God, if we don't get like the very first buttonhole in a shirt aligned properly, everything else is going to be off. Everything's going to be kind of like distorted. I always like to, you know, check the when the boys were younger, <laughs> when they came out of the room, was that what, is their shirt like off? And, and even sadly today, I as an adult will do the same thing. You get that one button off, it just you're off, you're off track. And guarding the right view of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit can actually help us to navigate and understand what true love actually is and protect us from false view of love. 
from false views of love. Please notice that I said false view of love. Why do I say that? Because God is love. And if we don't fully grasp and understand how God relates within himself, we won't understand what love actually consists of. A false view of God can lead to false views of love. And even a person assessing whether or not they have the love of God within their own hearts. Now, what was the false view of God that John is concerned about here? Um, he says in verse 7 that many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, this is a variation on the kind of same theme, a little bit louder, a little bit worse in some ways than the teaching that uh, bothered St. Nicholas and he slapped Arius for. Uh, Arius taught that there was a time when the Son of God was not. He was a created being. 200 years earlier, John heard teaching that taught that uh, Jesus did not exist as a united being with humanity. It, he only appeared to be divine. He actually was only ever human. And that the Spirit rested upon him at his baptism. And when he died on the cross, the Spirit left him. And this caused a lot of concern because what does this mean for our human flesh? If God simply rests upon us rather than becomes one with us. And this impacts, actually, our view of who our Heavenly Father is and our relationship to Him. Does God not really care for our human state? And that caused a lot of problems, and frankly, it causes a lot of problems today because Christians don't take seriously the incarnation of Christ coming and being one with humanity by not looking at us as being worth becoming one with, we diminish the value of who we are as male and female. There is a diminishing regard for that. God, God when he created the world, what when the world was God doing? And so these all matter in effect this. God was not actually bored before he created the world. Why would God create the world in the first place if, if he wasn't going to become one with us uh, through his son? What was God doing before creation? Why did he even need to create us to begin with? Well, God was not bored. God, God did not create the world for personal enrichment. He actually created the world because he exists as love, and it overflowed out of him. We, we, we know this, that uh, as Jesus told his disciples, he said in John chapter 17, verse 4, Now the Father, now Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, Jesus, when he came into the world, he came into the world as an overflow of that glory and love that existed between himself and the Father. 
And having a right view of this relationship between the Father and the Son is important because it communicates why God would even want to have a relationship with us and be united with us in the person of Jesus. There is love that existed between the Father and the Son, and it just overflowed. Creation was not here as a necessity for God to be full. God created because love overflowed. Now, you might stop and think, well, that seems pretty heavy and kind of up here, but I think we can relate to this. You know, it's very common for a lot of us to, to introduce ourselves as, I'm John Doe, and this is what I do for a living. Um, it's very common for people, for example, who are in the professional class to associate what they do with who they are. And I have to, you know, there's some people who put so much emphasis on the things that they do that when they can't do them anymore, they become depressed, they become deflated, and they almost, it's like, I don't, I, I have no real purpose anymore. You see this when people often retire, and they've been doing work for years and years and years, that that has become their identity, and they sense a loss when they cease to do what they've been doing. Think about it from this angle. God is who he is as a person, whether or not he created anything at all. He exists as love. Now this is, this is actually an important point because the overflow of God's being, his overflow directed his reason for creating us in the beginning. He wanted to have relationship with other people, other intelligent beings. And becoming one with human flesh was the reason why the Son came into the world, to bring us into relationship with Him. He didn't just create us to be drones. He created us to be, to be in relationship with Him. There is often so much disdain for humanity one of the most precious features of Christmas and the Christian message is that God who exists in eternity desired to become one with humanity and he was born in a manger stall. That is a beautiful representation of the care that God has for his creation. He didn't create us because he had to create. He created us because he wanted to create and he loves us as people. We are treasures to him. God puts a lot of value upon our flesh. And he does care. And the Spirit of God did not just rest upon Jesus. He became one with humanity. The Son of God incarnate declares for all time that God's unwavering commitment to us exists. And he will resurrect us from the grave. But how in the world does this protect us, though, from false kinds of love? How would that be possible? Well, in verse 7, there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world. Such a one is a deceiver 
and the Antichrist. It is someone who doesn't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, it's a very interesting turn of phrase. He uses the word the to designate a very specific person and also a very specific teaching. And he says, this one is the one who confesses this. This one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, often in our minds, we will often associate that term antichrist with someone who will come in the future speaking as if they are God incarnate. But this is a spirit of antichrist that's being referred to here. And this tells us that it's not just a teaching, it's also related to physical people. People can teach wrong things. Who is this one referred to? Well, I believe it's a person and it's a teaching. I don't know that his name is not mentioned here in the scriptures, but he, 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 John is aware that there is a person who's teaching. And these dark doctrines, the prince of darkness allows to penetrate through real people. And there's an inconsistency in the message, and there is an inconsistency in how they express love. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, Paul says this, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for the people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Now this expression, lovers of self rather than lovers of God, indicates that there will be a manifestation in individuals who do not hold the doctrine rightly in their minds. They may have the correct words even, but they don't understand how they relate to one another. And so they can even, maybe even, go so boldly as to say that Jesus um, is divine, but he's not a real person and so we can be spiritualistic and we can kind of like enjoy kind of the community of the church. But in the end, what's really going to manifest inside of them are the works of darkness. They will not in themselves display a love. They will have pride. They will have ingratitude. They will have impatience. They will have lack of self-control. There will be arrogance that will kind of flow out of those people who assume even that they hold the doctrine rightly. And this is John's concern, that not just holding the doctrine, but also holding the application together be true. They be consistent. And as Christians, we fail this very often because we don't take the time to reflect upon the relationship between a father and son and that they give towards one another and the Holy Spirit comes out of that. You might stop and say, well, that's just, that's esoterical, that's metaphysical, that's like, but that's the essence of who God is. And if we don't wrap our heads around that truth, we are not going to then allow ourselves to, to flow out towards others as the father and the son flow the Holy Spirit out towards others. 
Christians can at times be inconsistent. We, we can hold the words as doctrine. We can say, yes, I believe in the Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then we can be inconsistent at times because we, we allow lapses in our minds and we forget and we can grieve the Holy Spirit and not serve one another out of love. And it is possible to quench the Spirit within ourselves. But overall, these will not be persistent patterns. But there are times when a person's true nature becomes revealed over time. There are Christians who demonstrate a faux love. They're not in the teaching of Christ, really, because they have never been in the love of God. And abiding in the teachings of Christ is no less the letter of saying, I believe in the 66 books of the Bible is the inspired word of God. You can say those words, but you can also deflate those words by not putting them into application. The fruit of the Spirit exists because we have a relationship to the Heavenly Father through the Son because of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 15, 4, He said, Abide in me, and I in you. Do you see the reciprocation there? Abide in me, and I in you. There is a little trinity in that motion. That as you abide in Jesus and his teachings, he is then going to be abiding in you, and out of that, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is going to flow. I call it a little trinity because it's a reflection of the greater trinity. There may be that we have the right words about, about God, but we never let those orthodox expressions of truth change us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In this text, John's very clear. He says, you know, there are some people who, who they appear as though they're inside, but they're really outside. They've gone out, actually, into the world. Verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This one is a deceiver. And in verse 8, abiding in the teaching of Christ. Watch yourselves that we may not, have, we not lose what we have worked for. Abiding in is the idea of remaining inside and not going outside. Verse 9, it says, um, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in, there is that that inside-outside motif again. In verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, you know, it's like they, they're, they're coming to you from outside and they're coming in, introducing themselves and saying, hey, I'm a believer. I, I have faith. But yet, they don't hold on to the truths that you have received. You know, as Christians, we can become very attuned to how the world thinks about love. The world does not truly represent a selfless giving. There's always this kind of ulterior motive of what I can get out of a relationship. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, offered a unique 
viewpoint into the love of God in a very unique way. He did it through its opposite view. He had a he wrote a fictional series of, of letters between a senior demon and a junior demon. And the elder demon explained to the junior demon that love is actually the opposite of what he would call realism. In the demonic world, there is a supposition that if you, if you get something, someone gets something, then someone else will be disadvantaged. And so, reality is this. It's like a zero-sum game. So, if you get shelter, you are then depriving someone else of shelter. And if you give someone else shelter, you're depriving yourself of shelter. Or, if you are uh, giving other people food, you're depriving yourself of food. If you are not having pleasure in this situation and you're letting someone else have their way, then you are being denied, but that's just the real world. The demonic world actually can't fathom that people would voluntarily give up something that they need in order to benefit others. And the key word is voluntarily. The demonic world just can't comprehend how anyone would serve, someone would share, someone would consider others' interests greater than their own. See, the love of God as exists in, in the Trinity finds pleasure in the promotion of one another. Jesus said in the garden, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And this gave the Son a great joy as he anticipated the joy that would be received by his heavenly Father in his obedience, in his self-sacrifice. See, the demonic world looks at that and says, that's not realistic. That's not how it really works. It's because they don't know the joy that comes from giving of oneself so that others may be advantaged. Love a calm, according to the demonic world, is not real. But how wrong they are. The love of God finds pleasure in serving and, and in giving, and, and the blessings of everlasting life are resident in those actions. This is what I believe John is saying, is that like you, you go down this road of a wrong view of God, it's going to affect how you live out and it's potentially going to rob you of the reward that you would receive from practicing the love of God. Now, verse 8 says, Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. There is a reward that comes to us in this way. There is, honestly, a necessity to confess the Trinity as well that's found in the last few verses that can also protect us from unnecessary distractions. Last Sunday, we spoke about unity and we spoke about the need for uniformity that we think we need and we need to set aside uniformity and we need to adopt a unity that prefers one another. 
And so when you come to verses like this, it sounds odd that, that we would actually refuse people entry into our lives or even into the church of God. Because aren't we supposed to be accommodating and welcoming and, and trying to, to, try to bring people around? To There are times when that actually may be an unnecessary distraction for the good of the church. And this is true insofar as unity does not distort the truth about God. We ought to allow people to participate in the life of a church. There are times where we can, we can, we can take lesser things and allow tolerance for those things. But there are times when we can't tolerate things and we have to put those things out of our church. Confessions of faith are statements that churches have prepared through the years to assess whether or not we can have unity one with another. And the practice of unity around a statement of faith is an ancient practice that should not just be simply said, well, that's not, that's not useful. Church has been using this for centuries to assess who is among us and who is outside of us. And these are helpful tools so that we don't become distracted, but they can assist us in our practice of loving one another and loving others intentionally. Sometimes people get confused, and, and, and when they read the scriptures, they, they read like in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, where we had preached a few Sundays ago. In Matthew 10, Jesus talks about rewarding those who welcome in children into their midst. And there's a welcoming in of, of, um, of people who are mature. Those are not wrong things. But then people read that and then they get confused because in 3 John, just across your page in verse 9, you hear John speaking this way. John says in 3 John 9, it says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. That's bad behavior, and sometimes bad behavior has to be confronted. Sometimes it has to be removed. And that is the love of God to do so. But that can cause us confusion as we read the scriptures about turning the cheek and all that, that, that Christ commands us to do. Uh, I come across this uh, meme one time um, that I, I, I always look at this and reflect about something that John Calvin once said. He said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away the wolves. And sometimes that can cause confusion. There are times when we have to use our voice to gather people, but then there are times where the voice has to defend people. And this is essential for us. We ought to be careful that we not allow false loves into our dwelling places. Verse 10, uh, he says this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. What does it mean by house? On the one hand, it could mean 
a private dwelling. Some people would take it that way. On the other hand, it could also mean the church's public meeting space. And I believe it's probably the second of the two in this case because John addressed this letter to an elect lady as a metaphor for a church family with her children as members of that church family. And I personally see it in that direction that the church is, on the one hand, called to welcome all kinds of people, but yet at the same time, we ought to make sure that those who present themselves into the congregation are carrying the same belief with them as they come. It's not like we stand at the door and check to see if everyone has signed the, con the, the confession of faith. That's not what I'm saying. But gradually over time, there has to be an assessment of whether we truly agree with one another and whether or not simply signing a paper is whether or not a person is truly a believer or not. And I think it's important for us to realize that the ancient church has practiced church membership for these reasons. Not everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh fully represents the truth that Jesus has come to dwell with flesh and to be one with them to bring the love of God to them. In verse 10 and 11, there is also the truth that we have to not allow false loves to gain more traction. Verse 10, at the end, he says, you know, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Participation with, with wickedness can create a complicity in darkness. There needs at times to be a distance from that which is not true. We have to be careful that we do not grant approval towards those who promote wrong loves. There is something that John is preaching here that's really important, but we ought not put it into a place where we're overreading what he says. I grew up in a church that took second and third degree doctrinal teaching or even opinions, and place those on the level of primary importance. That's not what John is saying. There are secondary things that may be important, but they're not necessarily on the same level as the gospel itself. We do not need to put on the same level things like end-time views or things like divorce and remarriage. We have to be careful that we're able to separate and understand what's the most important thing. We also have third-degree things that are really preference items. We have things like different opinions on Bible translations or even entertainment choices or even the social use of alcohol. Those things can have their place within a congregation, but people need to have love for one another and bring and promote unity within the body of Christ. Those are the things that John is not talking about here. What John is talking about here is someone in separating those who deny that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, who deny the implications of the love of God being expressed. 
And sometimes pastors have to use the secondary voice to drive wolves away. And that can cause people confusion. Some people will twist Scripture and they'll say, well, you know, if you drive someone away and you treat them as a tax collector and publican, well, then that now obligates you to uh, practice friendship evangelism with them. No, that's not true. That's warping the true sense and meaning of those Scriptures. If they have not embraced the truth of the Gospel, we are not to bring them into our house as if they were brothers and sisters in Christ. In short, these are distractions, distractions to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to those who truly desire the truth, who really want the truth. And so we have to avoid the deceptions. We have to watch ourselves with the love of God. Yeah, we have to have an understanding of the Trinity, but we also need to put that into application. We need to be giving of ourselves towards one another. And to confess the Trinity can be a practical protection from deceit, but it can also protect us from unnecessary distractions. Deceit plays to our hearts what we want to be true. Just as it did in the, Eve, in the very, very beginning, Eve wanted to believe that what she saw would make her become like God. That's what her heart wanted, but she was deceived. Lewis, in his letters between the junior and elder deacon, quoted this little line, old error in new dress is ever error nonetheless. And deviation from the love of God is at root the essence of all false loves that exist. Truth is always found in conformity to the love of God. We can be thankful for those who, like jolly old Saint Nick, slapped the face of Arius at the Council of Nicaea. He did that because he, he wanted to protect the church from false teachings that would lead to false loves. So to avoid deception, we ought to watch ourselves in the love of God. Let's pray.